This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. In 1984, a Roman Catholic priest and professor of political philosophy at Georgetown University, the late James Shaw, released a book called The Politics of Heaven and Hell. This book took on the profound problem with modernity, postulating that it hijacked the transcendent goal of Christianity, secularized it, and tried to realize it concretely in the political order. Now, those words come from the foreword to The Politics of Heaven and Hell, which has just been reprinted. And the foreword is written by Robert. Robert Riley, director of the Westminster Institute and author of several great books himself, including America on Trial, A Defense of the Founding. And he is joining us today to examine how the politics of heaven and hell is strangely current with modern politics and has a lot to teach us even now. So good to welcome you back, Mr. Riley. How are you doing? Oh, how nice to be with you again. Just fine. I hope you're doing well. Oh, very well. Thank you so much. You know, you're the perfect person, I think, to to write a forward to a book like this. I read one review that describes Shaw's central insight in this book as our classic traditions of both faith and reason agree that politics is an important but circumscribed realm. That is, politics alone can't save. Would that be your same assessment of the main thesis of this book? Yeah, I think so. It it goes actually deeper than that. And I think this book is not only profound in its analysis of classical and medieval philosophy and of using both of those in, uh, let's say, a a diagnosis of modernity, uh, it shows that um, I I think it's prophetic. Yeah. I think one can understand what's going on today uh, only with this kind of analysis of how the ends of man, uh, which are understood within Christianity, to reside in the inner life of God, uh, has now been secularized and undertaken as a project by the state. Hmm. Yes. And that this this distortion has led not only to the totalitarian regimes that we saw in the 20th century, but to the development of, of Leviathan states in, in democracy. Now, you know, we I, it, I can point to just two quick things here. Uh, the advantage that has been taken of the coronavirus by certain governors to institute a kind of rule that is completely alien to the American constitutional uh, system. Yes. Uh, for instance, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, our governor here has taken it upon himself to dictate uh, who can go to church when, uh, how many people, or if you can go at all. That abortion is an essential service that will continue, but going to church is not. Wow. Um, and his latest pronouncement is that he was going to pursue the legalization of of drugs or of marijuana here and that it would be done with racial equity. Ugh. If you could possibly understand what that nonsensical statement means. Yeah. 
um, and you know, how could a state undertake uh, projects which are a complete inversion of the common good, understood within the classical Christian perspective of the purpose and end of man and a sharing of the life of God. Yeah. Uh, it, well, it's only if you you um, deny that. True. That's true. And I think Father Shaw's great, great insight was that uh, you you can only understand the magnitude of the distortions that are taking place if you see that they have appropriated uh, the ends of Christianity in in and translated them in a particularly secular way. Mm. And you know the other thing, if I could just quickly jump to what we saw in, this past summer in the streets and the riots and the destruction. I've read the manifestos, the creeds of Black Lives, Black Lives Matter and allied organizations, and they they come right out of Father Shaw's book. Hmm. Interesting. In the sense that they are explicit denials of the natural, natural ends of man, much less his supernatural end. They don't acknowledge any natural ends of human beings. Hmm. And as uh, Father Shaw has said, you know, the war against nature is really a war against God. It is. And curiously, in in the Black Lives uh, Matter manifesto, it, it, it concerns itself with transgender, with homosexual, with lesbian. In other words... It's not simply a political program uh, to overcome racism in the United States. It's it's a metaphysical program to eviscerate nature. Yes. So that man becomes whatever he wills himself to be, and there are no standards outside of man's will uh, as to what he ought to be. And what you need to do and what I need to do is simply get out of their way and conform ourselves to their pronouncements. Oh, boy. And as you know, so this is Father Shaw shows how these suppositions ineluctably uh, lead to tyranny, and to a tyranny that's far worse than the classical tyrannies of, say, the ancient world. Wow. Because these are involved in that denial of the nature of human beings. Well, that may have been a longer answer than you wanted. <laughs> no, it was perfect. You just touched on so much. I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to have enough time to follow up on everything you've said, because everything you said needs to be discussed. But, for example, when you're talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, this was a movement that was followed by two, three people, but two of them identify as queer. That's what they call themselves. Right. So what, what that well, leads... Queer, queer Marxists. Queer Marxists, exactly. So what that leads to, in my thinking, is going back to something that else that was mentioned in the politics of heaven and hell and that's the issue of gnosticism because if you have this idea that you can just kind of create your identity and the material world is not so much what it is i mean there are a lot of overlaps aren't there philosophically with that ancient heresy in some of what we're seeing in the lgbt movement and how that is really throwing us off isn't that the truth i mean gnosticism of course involves a denigration of matter uh, that matter is seen as the source of evil, really. Yeah. And this is contrary, of course, to 
to Christian revelation, particularly particularly to Genesis, uh, which uh, discloses that God creates everything out of his love, and everything he made is good. Yes. Each day is followed by that majestic refrain, and he saw that it was good. Yeah. And of course, uh, latterly, he creates man, whom he sees as especially good, because we're in his image and likeness. Now, when you denigrate matter, you, of course, are denying this, and you involved in that denigration is the alteration of the matter that makes us up as human beings. True. And therefore, um, the, the surgical um, evisceration of parts of our bodies is considered a right. Yeah. To deface yourself is considered a right. Yeah. Because there's no longer an image of God inhering in you. It's your will will make of you what you wish. And if that uh, requires lopping off your genitalia, well, so much the worse for your genitalia. I mean, it is, and you can see now that we're uh, expecting uh, a a new regime in Washington that uh, Vice President Biden has already announced his crusade for transgenderism. Yes. And I have a son who's a serving uh, Marine officer who's already had to put up with some of this stuff, and now it's going to be amplified because on his transition team for the Department of Defense is, guess what? A transgender person. Of course, yeah. And this is so essential to the events of our country, isn't it? I it, mean, this kind of, this this distorted... The absurdity of these distortions becomes manifest through actions like this. You're totally right. Hang on just a moment. Robert Riley with us. We'll come back talking about the politics of heaven and hell. We'll come back on Janet Meffer today after this. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Preborn currently has seven centers without ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost $15,000, more than most centers can afford. But right now, through a matching grant, your donation of $7,500 will place a machine in a needy women's center in your area. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping 
helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, we really are in a day when the unthinkable and the absurd are increasingly being normalized. And Robert Riley is with us. He wrote the foreword to the reprinted edition of James Shaw's The Politics of Heaven and Hell, Christian Themes from Classical, Medieval, and Modern Political Philosophy. And it is the case that when we forget God and we try to use politics to create a new kind of reality and a new kind of meaning for man, it all falls apart. And we're living through a lot of that, which makes this book all the more relevant right now. You know, you were saying, Mr. Riley, before we went to the break, we were t- you were talking about Joe Biden and his transition team and, and, you know, his embracing of the transgenderism. And I thought kind of gives new meaning to the term transition team. But anyway, with the, the transgender issue, this is fiction. I don't care how well you can find, you know, a surgeon who will do vile things to try to recreate you like Frankenstein's monster. This is stuff that Rome never could have imagined. I mean, we're like you said before, we're seeing tyrannies that are even worse than ancient Rome, but we're seeing embracing of things that Rome wouldn't have embraced ever. It's it's we're living in a really alternate reality now. Yeah, I'm afraid reality has been put in the rearview mirror um, and we're driving very fast away from it. Yeah. But I think, you know, if I could address just for a moment the title of this book, which is so enticing, The Politics of Heaven and Hell, uh, why did Father Shaw choose that title? Well, uh, he makes a central theme of the book what he calls the locus of beatitude. Yeah. In other words, every human being desires happiness, and, and in fact, he desires ever, he or she desires everlasting happiness, which we find is, is unavailable to us here, hmm. uh, which is one of the great sadnesses of life. We want to be happy, but we can't achieve that, that kind of final happiness. So Father Shaw points out that Christ's resurrection relieved man of this anxiety and solved a classical uh, political problem concerning happiness. Hmm. That, in fact, happiness is available to every human being who will participate in the resurrection, and that final happiness, the locus of beatitude, as Father Shaw puts it, is in the sharing of God's life itself, in the sharing of his divinity, which Hmm. is even beyond man's natural capacity to to be happy, it's a supernatural happiness. So this, as Father Shaw makes clear, this relieves politics yeah. of the burden of, you know, quote-unquote saving man and uh, trying to achieve that kind of happiness here. Yes. And it's, it's when, in the modern world, uh, that supernatural happiness has been excluded that the state assumes upon itself, as it must if it engages in this project, all the powers, and becomes totalitarian with uh, this kind of humanitarian goal of making man happy here and now. 
yeah. completely happy, you see, right. which, of course, ends up in, in the elimination of man as a human being, as we saw in the gulags and the slaughterhouses. Now, just to qu- switch quickly over to the other part of the formulation, the politics of heaven and hell, <clears throat> Father Shaw makes clear that hell is essential to the idea of freedom and justice. Just as Socrates in the Republic postulated the immortality of the soul based on the demands of justice, as clearly justice could not be delivered perfectly by any state in this world, Mm -hmm. it must, though, be satisfied somehow, and therefore uh, Socrates said, well, man's soul is immortal, and that justice will be achieved in his next life. Um, so there's that element to it, and of course, uh, Christianity, Christian revelation enhanced that through the notion of the resurrection, the final judgment, and so forth. Right. But the seriousness of free will uh, can, can only be uh, taken seriously if the free choice of evil is dealt with justly. Hmm. If, if this is not so, if there is not a hell, as Christianity says there is, um, there is an unseriousness about human choices. Mm, interesting. It removes the consequences. It, it, it actually robs human freedom of its dignity. But we do know that if one consciously, repeatedly chooses to do evil, Uh, consciously lives a life of vice, that that hell is available to them, and that that is what hell is for, for for the uh, deliverance of justice on those who consciously and repeatedly choose evil. For sin. Yeah, and what's interesting about that is I I do take comfort in the existence of hell because I know that that God will set all things right and there will be justice for those who don't repent and there will be mercy for those who do because of the resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what's interesting about that to me is in the, the modern context of the discussion of justice, all we hear about social justice, social justice, all of these things, the assertion of the need for justice Isn't this part of the whole fallen man attempt really to have some sort of utopia on earth that is not achievable? And it it makes me wonder sometimes when I listen to the way these people speak, do they really think they're going to get perfect justice on earth? Because when and where have we ever had it, given the nature of man, which is sinful, we're never going to get perfect justice on earth. Isn't that the truth? And here's what's interesting. Father Shaw spends a good bit of time in this book on Plato's uh, Republic. Yeah. And in the Republic, Plato shows what a state will look like if it delivers perfect justice. What's required? And guess what? In that perfect state, you have the elimination of the family, hmm. the elimination of private property. You have... Um, um, etc. You can go through genetics. You you can go through the litany, and then start go back and read the uh, the creeds of Black Lives Matter and these other groups, and it comes right out of the Republic. Wow. 
that's incredible. when you see their elimination, as you know, their attack upon the, the nuclear family. Yeah, uh, they they they're they're trying to approximate uh, this perfect justice through their programs, and they replicate the proto totalitarian state through which Plato was showing us perfect justice is not available here. That's so interesting. Which, which is in the immortality of the soul. And Father Shaw, in this book, goes into, look, and says, this is leading to the genetic manipulation of man, to women in combat, <laughs> to, and he goes through every one, though this was written in 1984, it sounds like it was written this morning. It does. That's why I say the book is prophetic. Yeah. Um, and so it... it um, and it's interesting, in, in one section he talks about mercy and forgiveness mm-hmm. as necessary to break the connection between justice and vengeance, you know, which it just leads to kind of a never-ending circular process of grievance and violence and so forth. Yes. And making very clear that, that this, this mercy... Uh, it was a supernatural virtue hmm. that man. Uh, it was something required of man, uh, w- but through the grace he is given through Christ. Hmm. And only when this mercy, uh, what was again secularized, in other words, the the project of mercy was undertaken without grace. By the secular state, it became what we now call compassion. (laughs) And this compassion is manifested in welfare programs that have had the effect of destroying many black families. Right. And, 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 of course, has required a level of political control that has enhanced uh, the the powers of the state. That's very true. It, you know, all done in the name of this compassion, which is a perverted form of the mercy uh, in that supernatural virtue, virtue. So all you have to do is dechristianize this kind of stuff, and it turns into to monsters. That's true. That's so true. The parallels are very interesting. And what all strikes me is, you know, this emphasis that Jesus limited politics. I mean, obviously, he said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But he understood the kingdom of God is something separate. And Augustine wrote about this, obviously, in City of God, that there are two different realms. But this is interesting because the progressives, for example, will pick up Jesus and try to make him their mascot. You know, Jesus, the sheep and the goats. Jesus was for socialism. And you're like, are you even? reading the Bible, that's a, it, you're completely distorting it, but isn't this really the point? They have to distort what is true in order to bring about a worldly kind of philosophy and this kind of statism that, that is increasingly growing here in the United States in front of our eyes. Yeah, they, they take it out of context. I mean, the whole point of, of Father Shaw's brilliant remark that Christianity makes politics possible by limiting it. Hmm. It's precisely uh, Christian revelation that puts politics in its place. And as St. Augustine uh, so brilliantly lays out, the role of political life is, is to achieve very limited ends of providing the tranquility of order 
and of dealing with um, the disorders that are uh, come out because of our imperfections and vices. You're right about that. To keep the peace. It's not to save man. Christ saves man. Yep, that's exactly right. Robert Riley, we've got to end it there, but The Politics of Heaven and Hell is the book. Thank you so much, Mr. Riley. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Wow, it really is tough to keep up with everything that's been going on as far as all these lawsuits from the Trump campaign trying to get this rigged election dealt with by the courts. And I'm comfortable saying that because I just don't know how you can deny it, given all of the ballot numbers and the skullduggery that's been going on. This is my favorite word lately. I'm sorry if I'm overusing it. President Trump, though, was on yesterday with Maria Bartiromo talking about this whole issue. He was really wondering where the FBI has been and the DOJ has been when it comes to all of this alleged election fraud data. And the Washington Examiner has pointed out that Phil Klein, the Amistad Project Director, announced the FBI now has requested to look into some of this data on election fraud and is working with former chief Trump campaign strategist Matt Brainerd after learning that hundreds of thousands of ballots are potentially fraudulent. So the FBI is now looking into the data, but This is about as animated as I've heard President Trump, and he's always animated. I shouldn't try to give the impression that he's somehow always calm and (laughs) measured. He certainly isn't, but he certainly was fired up talking about this issue. He starts here, I'm going to play this cut here, on the issue of the press. And this is a very important point because... If you have, it's like the old adage, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? And I guess you could say the question now is, if you had a rigged election, if you had one major party completely cheating in order to throw the election to their candidate and the press ignored it, did it really happen? Of course, it still happens. But how do the people learn about it? And this is what President Trump addressed. This is cut one. Uh, The media doesn't even want to cover it. I mean, you're doing something. You're actually very brave because you're doing something. The media doesn't want to talk about it. They know how fraudulent this is. It's no different than Hunter. It's no different than Hunter. They don't want to talk about Hunter. So they totally closed it off. Big tech and the media, other than the New York Post, as you remember, which took a lot of heat. It was terminated. It was terminated from, I guess, Twitter, maybe Facebook. Uh, but uh, it's a it's a situation the likes of which we don't have freedom of the press in this country. We have suppression by the press. They suppress. You know, you can't have a scandal if nobody reports about it. This is the greatest fraud in the history of our country from an electoral standpoint. And I guess you could build it up bigger than an electrical. St- what's what's bigger from an a, a electoral standpoint? What's bigger than this? This is the essence of our country. This is the whole ball game. And they cheated. Well, this is the whole ball game. And I agree with those people who are beginning to make noises about the fact that if there is not 
full justice brought to bear on this situation, that this is by far the biggest political scandal in American history. And we were saying that not too long ago over the fake dossier paid for by the Clinton campaign and the DNC and the fake impeachment hoax nonsense that was perpetrated upon President Trump. It's incredible. And do you notice how once they try these tricks and they lose, it kind of just magically goes away? It just goes away until they do their next thing. Have you heard any of these people squawk about Justice Kavanaugh being some sort of an alleged rapist anymore? Nobody's talking about it. Why? Because it failed. It didn't work. It did not work. Now, let's talk a little bit here, as the president did, about this issue of these people who voted in this election, including those who lived a long time ago. Cut to. This is a terrible thing that's happened. The mail-in ballots were are a disaster. They sent... Millions and millions and millions of mail-in ballots. I'm sure you know people that got two, three, or four, because I do, where they said, you know, we got four ballots. They got one at a country home. Dead people were seeing ballots. But even worse, dead people were applying to get a ballot. They were making application to get ballots. Many. And, you know, we're not talking about 10 people. We're talking there are a lot of dead people that so-called voted in this election. But dead people were in some cases, in many, many cases, thousands of cases, voted. But also, dead people made application to vote. They were dead 10 years, 15 years, and they actually made application. This is total fraud. And how the FBI and Department of Justice, I don't know, maybe they're involved, but how people are allowed to get away from this stuff, with this stuff is unbelievable. This election was rigged. This election was a total fraud. Okay, as we mentioned before, now we have word that the FBI is looking into some of this fraudulent election data. We'll see how far this gets. I have to confess, not because I want to be a pessimist just for the fun of it, but I have to confess that I have zero faith in the FBI. Zero. Thank you, James Comey. I have zero faith in these people. None. And I don't have a lot more faith in the DOJ, even though we have William Barr at the head uh, as attorney general. I just don't trust these people at all because we have too many instances in which these deep staters have showed their hand again and again and again and again and again. But I guess you have to just go back to hope springs eternal. I hope and pray that there still are some good people within the deep state confines who will do the right thing. So we have to pray along those lines, because what else can we do? Now, one more cut I want to play from the president who just gets down to the main point. Cut three. We won the election easily. There's no way Joe Biden got 80 million votes. I just said there's no way Joe Biden beat Barack Obama in the black communities of various cities. And then he did very badly compared to Obama in other cities throughout the United States. There's no way it happened. This This election was a fraud. It was a rigged election. I have to concur. 80 million votes for Joe Biden when he couldn't even get 20 people at a campaign stop. Are you kidding? Nobody cares about this man. He's a puppet. He is a puppet for the globalists. He's a puppet for the technocrats. They want him in. And who knows what will happen if and when he is inaugurated president, how long it will be before they invoke the 25th Amendment and throw him out and Kamala becomes the president. Who knows? But it also looks a little bit to me like this is going to be Obama's second term 2.0, meaning his third term. He doesn't get a third term, but he's getting a third term, is he not? He's, he's all, he wrote another autobiography. Go away. I miss the days when it was really expected of former presidents that they would go away, 
They used to go away. They would shake the hand of the incoming president and they would board the helicopter. And that was the end of it. And nobody saw these guys appearing on any talk shows, slamming the guy who was in office, even if he was in the other party. You didn't see that kind of behavior. You see it now. You sure see it now. There's Barack Obama going around, slamming President Trump, talking about that, like the guy never left. That's what really bothers me. So are you going to get all these Obama people back in the White House with a Joe Biden presidency? Of course you are. Of course you are. And it's going to be the Obama presidency on steroids. And having covered the extent of the two terms of Barack Obama, I'm not looking forward to that, which is why I continue to pray that justice will be done here. Now, one good note is what's going on in Pennsylvania as a result of a bad note in Pennsylvania. There's just so many shifting things going on, uh, shifting very quickly. Uh, You might have heard that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court issued this three-page order dismissing that election lawsuit that was brought by Sean Parnell and several other qualified Pennsylvania voters. The whole thing was about challenging the constitutionality of a state law in Pennsylvania that had to do with mail-in voting. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court is a joke. They threw this thing out basically because they said Parnell and the voters waited too long to file the lawsuit. But there's a twist to all of this because the merits of the case really are important for you to understand, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. But what I am encouraged about is the fact that you have this effort now in Pennsylvania to fight back on the legislature side. And this is very, very good. State Senator Doug Mastriano, who's a Republican in Pennsylvania, said that the power here of the electors, he said there's mounting evidence that the Pennsylvania presidential election was compromised. If this is the case under Article 2, Section 1.2 of the U.S. Constitution, the state legislature has the sole authority to direct the manner of selecting delegates to the Electoral College, and it was given to the legislature for the purpose of safeguarding the appointment of our president, specifically contemplating corruption and ensuring that the people are not disenfranchised through a corrupt election process. So they are introducing a resolution to exercise their obligation and authority to appoint delegates to the Electoral College. This is a good piece of news, but there is potentially more good news on the horizon in Pennsylvania. We're going to pause for a very quick break. And when we come back, I'll tell you why. We'll be back on Janet Mefford today right after this. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. What did you pray for today? Good health, safety, maybe to meet a goal? Those are good things to pray for. But pastors and evangelists in the Middle East aren't praying for material blessings or for an end to the persecution or difficulties they face. Rather, they're praying for copies of God's Word so that believers will be spiritually nourished and strengthened to live out their faith in this challenging part of the world. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in places like the Middle East, Asia, Africa, and Latin America live each day without their very own Bible. But you can send one today. Give one Bible for only $5, 20 Bibles for $100, or 200 Bibles for $1,000. Whatever you'd like to give, you can become a Bible sender by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-W-O-R-D. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. John M. Reeves, who's an appellate lawyer in St. Louis and spent six and a half years as an assistant Missouri attorney general in Jefferson City, wrote a very good piece on what's been going on in Pennsylvania. As I mentioned previously, the Supreme Court there in Pennsylvania uh, dismissed this election lawsuit that had been brought and everybody was happy initially. Oh, yay, there's going to be some justice here. And they they said that this, you know, the parties involved in this suit waited too long to file the lawsuit. But this is interesting because he asks the question, is the Pennsylvania mail-in voting law unconstitutional? And he says the answer is most likely yes. And here's why. The Pennsylvania Constitution allows absentee voting under five situations, work, illness, physical disability, the election occurring on a religious holiday, or a person's election day duties themselves, preventing the person from voting in person. No other justifications are allowed for absentee voting under the Pennsylvania Constitution. Now, toward the end of last year, a majority of both houses of the Pennsylvania General Assembly passed the relevant mail-in voting legislation that's at issue here. Um, And they expanded this mail-in voting beyond those situations under the Pennsylvania Constitution to include any situation. So the law purported to allow voting by mail for any reason, um, you know, that that's where it stands now. Any reason you can have a mail-in voting situation, which seems a little odd, doesn't it? But he says, while the General Assembly passed the legislation, this was not in and of itself sufficient to amend the Pennsylvania Constitution and expand voting by mail beyond those five circumstances. To amount to a constitutional amendment, the Pennsylvania Constitution requires that the law be passed a second time by a majority vote of both houses of the General Assembly in the next legislative assembly. And once that's done, a majority of Pennsylvania voters then have to approve the mail-in voting legislation in a statewide election. And the above process, he says, has not taken place. Indeed, the Pennsylvania General Assembly itself appears to have recognized that such an expansion of mail-in voting would have to come about via a constitutional amendment as the law itself was originally presented as a joint resolution proposing an amendment to the Pennsylvania Constitution. Are you following this? So they didn't do it right. Parnell and the other voters brought suit, as you know, back in November uh, 21st, back in November, I say back in November, it's still November, in the Commonwealth Court of Pennsylvania, seeking a declaration that the mail-in voting law is unconstitutional and an injunction barring the Pennsylvania Secretary of State from certifying the results of the general election until the lawsuit was completed. So we know how this is going. The Supreme Court, though, I'll reiterate, did not address 
the fact that the mail-in voting legislation had not been passed in such a manner as to amend the Pennsylvania Constitution. They just said, we're going to throw it out because you guys waited too long. Now, there also might be the possibility that this could go on because this could involve a federal question. He says, if other lawsuit litigation is any predictor, Parnell and the other voters will now seek an expedited petition, and they will most likely also apply to Justice Alito, who is the circuit justice for the Third Circuit, looking for an emergency injunction barring the Pennsylvania Secretary of State from certifying the results of the election pending resolution of the cert petition. To obtain the court's review, Parnell and the other voters have to show that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's decision somehow violates federal law. While the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's decision is rooted in state law, a good argument can be made that it involves a federal question. So this is where it stands right now, and we'll see what comes of it. Now, Jenna Ellis from the Trump campaign's legal team talked with OANN on Saturday about what the Pennsylvania lawmakers are about to do. This is cut for. We're very excited that uh, the Pennsylvania legislature, led by uh, Doug Mastriano and others, uh, there are almost 30 legislators now that are co-signers of this resolution that will use their Article 2, Section 1.2 authority uh, to make sure that they don't go along with an irredeemably corrupted election. And so this is exactly why our founders put that provision in Article 2. And uh, to follow up on what Jack was just reporting, uh, it's really important to note that uh, there are multiple vehicles to make sure that either the Supreme Court uh, directs the state legislature to fulfill their duty or the or the state legislatures can do that themselves. And that's why it's so incredibly important that the Pennsylvania legislature allowed us that hearing last week. And now they are moving forward with this uh, resolution that they are going to not certify those election results and they are going to make sure to name their delegates uh, according to the constitutional process to make sure that none of their constituents in Pennsylvania are disenfranchised through a corrupt election. We're hopeful that as Pennsylvania leads the way, then other states, including Arizona, Michigan, um, Nevada, others in Georgia, will also recognize how corrupt this election uh, was and also take back their delegates to make sure that we, the people, genuinely get to select and prefer our president. And we're confident that when every legal vote is counted, of course, Donald Trump won. And this is the constitutional process to remedy that corrupted election. And here is the bottom line on all of this. If you have the courts weigh in the way that the Trump administration hopes and prays the courts will weigh in, then there is a fighting chance that Trump could succeed and could get that second term. But from where I'm sitting right now, it just on paper here, it is a long shot. It is a very long shot. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I sincerely believe they have a ton of evidence because I've been reading all of this and I've been looking at what they've been putting out and I've been seeing these statements. They have a lot of evidence. And Sidney Powell, as you know, has filed this emergency demand to seize all the voting machines for forensic audit in the state of Georgia. I mean, there are a lot of things going on on the ground there. But the, the issue is, can they win in court? Can they win in court? So that's what's really at stake here. And if this does not go the way that the Trump administration hopes that it goes, one of the fallout issues, which is probably the primary fallout issue in all of this, is about voting in general. 
how how you know how can you vote in the future and feel like it makes any difference whatsoever this will have disenfranchised 75 million people 74 million people who voted for Trump, who are looking at the same evidence I'm looking at and saying, hey, wait a minute, give me a break. And it flies in the face of common sense. Does anybody really believe that Joe Biden won with 80 million votes? Come on. I mean, give me a break. Patrick Basham over at Spectator has a really good piece on the reasons why the 2020 presidential election is deeply puzzling and mentions we're told that Biden won more votes nationally than any presidential candidate in history, but he won a record low of 17% of counties. He only won 524 counties as opposed to the 873 counties Obama won in 2008. And yet Biden somehow outdid Obama in total votes. It doesn't make any sense. And when you look at how many Republicans were winning seats and and some of those races are still being called and they keep winning seats, that's very strange. It almost looks like there were coattails. President Trump had coattails. So all of these Republican lawmakers were elected, but the president eh, got crushed. And he was up on election night in some of these states by a lot. And all of a sudden, 3 a.m., let's stop counting. Oh, millions of votes. The hundreds of thousands of votes came in here in this state and this state and this state and this state. And all of them were for Biden. Isn't that a miracle? We're supposed to believe that? We don't believe that. And why do you think Twitter is questioning every single tweet where someone is trying to put the pieces together? And why do you think the mainstream media is doing its level best to suppress this information, as President Trump pointed out? Because they're running scared. People who are interested in transparency would be joining you and making sure that everything was done on the up and up and they're not doing it. Because who would vote for a man who is clearly mentally compromised without, I mean, there are people who would vote for him because they're anti-Trump votes or there are true believers in the progressive cause. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is 80 million votes for a guy who couldn't get 25 people to a rally it, it, it just it doesn't make any sense. Speaking of courts, and I got to get this in before I run out of time, because this was really, really good. Amy Coney Barrett. Oh, so glad to see her. 5-4 decision. This came in right before Thanksgiving when we weren't here with you live, but I'm going to talk about it a little bit here. The Supreme Court granted the request from the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn and two Orthodox Jewish synagogues to block enforcement of a New York executive order restricting attendance at houses of worship. This is from the SCOTUS blog. They were claiming that New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's executive order violated their right to the free exercise of religion guaranteed by the First Amendment, particularly when secular businesses in the area were allowed to remain open and the court went their way and praise the Lord for that. That was really important. And and isn't it scary to think now that we have a 5-4 conservative Supreme Court, it was that one extra vote that made this go the right way. I mean, this is huge for us as Christians to look at what the Supreme Court is doing. And for all those never Trumpers, Russell Moore and the like, ah, who cares about the Supreme Court? We do. We care about the Supreme Court because we care about the Constitution. So praise the Lord for that decision. And welcome, Amy Coney Barrett. It's great to have you on board. All right, we've got to leave it there. Thanks for being with us. God bless you. We'll see you next time here on Janet Meffer Today.